Uh, so, Paul, thanks for joining the show today. We're here to discuss your new book, The Race to Zero, How ESG Investing Will Crater the Global Financial System. First, before we begin, can you give a little bit of your background, if you could? Sure. Uh, and, and it's good to be with you, Nick. Um, so my background is uh, I worked on Wall Street for 40 years. Um, and first half over the uh, career was on the sell side, second half on the buy side. And for most of my career, I was involved with the energy sector. Um, and I wrote this book mainly because uh, there hasn't been uh, an inside view from Wall Street offered that is critical about ESG, uh, mainly because people who work in the industry are not allowed to have a divergent opinion. So, you know, the first thing I did after I left my last day job two years ago was to sit down and, and write this book to kind of lay out the argument uh, against against ESG. Um, and, you know, I think also the, the focus over the last couple of years, while it has increased in terms of the opposition to ESG, has been somewhat misplaced in terms of focusing more on um, cultural issues rather than climate change, which I think is the core of ESG, and also some of the tactics that have been proposed for reversing this, I would disagree with. Yeah, I want to get into all of that. And, and before we get into the specifics of your book, in your book, uh, about ESG broadly, a topic, like you mentioned, has gained a little bit, you know, limited traction, particularly in conservative circles, but still not very widespread. And when, when people, though, hear ESG, they might be led to think, you know, woke or something like that. But it is more specific than that. How would you define ESG? Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at the just the, the, the straightforward definition, it's, it's uh, environmental, social, and governance factors. Uh, all of which are non-financial metrics, but using them to set corporate policy as well as drive investment decision-making. So that's ESG in a nutshell. And it, it's predicated on stakeholder capitalism, which is this theory that companies need to be run for the benefit of society, for people and planet uh, is kind of the, uh, the language that they use, as opposed to just being run for their shareholders and bondholders and their employees. And that's not capitalism. You know, that, that may be the end stage of capitalism if we don't reverse this, but it's more socialism or at least government-directed capitalism. And, and one of the truths about ESG is that it's really the government that is driving this. This is not a populist investment fad that uh, has just come on the last few years. It's being directed by governments uh, governments through the the uh, supranational agencies, particularly the United Nations, and and a network of NGOs. So it's being forced on the market. Um, it's not based on demand. Kind of alluded to this, you know, we've we've heard a lot of folks, uh, maybe not the types as far left, AOC or Rashida Tlaib talking about this, but Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, others. They say they're capitalists, but then they they back ESG. Is this uh, kind of reworking of capitalism. I'm not even sure if it can be called capitalism or is that something that you talked about in your book, like a fundamental change to capitalism itself through ESG? Yeah. And I think you have one good thing about writing a book is you've got plenty of time to kind of lay out the entire argument. And so in the book, I trace the roots of this and, and they go back, you know, decades, uh, if not more than a century. So you can view ESG and sustainable investing uh, as, as another, just the latest in, in a series of attacks on capitalism that go all the way back to the 19th century. 
Um, you can also look at it in the context of all the attacks that have been made on the energy sector and fossil fuels for more than 100 years now. And those are, those are two intertwined uh, programs because obviously fossil fuels drive capitalism. That's been a truism for the last 150 plus years. Um, so you have to see it in that context. And then also, as I mentioned, it's primarily the United Nations that have been leading the charge on climate change, sustainable development, and now ESG. And those are three legs to the same stool. And those really have a 40-year head start uh, on us. Um, and I think to, to assume that it's going to be reversed now, if we can just point out all the inconsistencies in it, I, I think that's uh, a little naive. I think we need to be more aggressive in terms of the tactics to reverse this. But you can view it on a continuum that goes back many decades. Uh, but I, I would argue that ESG is probably the most elegant uh, attack that has been used against capitalism because it doesn't have the fingerprints of government on it. It's really the government directing the, the uh, financial markets and the private sector to do its bidding, um, starting with uh, getting to net zero and uh, decarbonizing, which obviously most people would, would, would acknowledge is going to be negative for Americans, the economy, and the financial markets, but nobody talks about that. So it's amazing how much has been accomplished through moral duress, and now we're going to cement that all in place with regulations to make it mandatory. Did, did COVID have any uh, impact on the implementation of ESG at all? Did this, did it, did it make it go quicker? Did it hasten this? Did it hasten this? Did it, uh, did it slow it down? Was there any impact at all but with COVID? Yeah, I think COVID was kind of a dry run for, you know, emergency powers declared by, by government. And it showed exactly what at least Americans and, and you know, other citizens would be willing to take. Uh, if they're told that there is an emergency. So I, I think it's a dry run for what may be the declaration of a global climate emergency. And I, I think that may come as early as 2025. Certainly Europe and the European countries that are, you know, really ground zero for ESG and are, are the ones pushing this are, are moving in that direction. So I think after this election year, which is a critical one, um, you know, I think uh, it may get more aggressive, you know, starting next year. But I think you know, the ability to, to declare a climate emergency, then that gives the government more powers and they'll be more aggressive. We're in the process of a major transition in the energy sector, wind and solar electric vehicles. We're here in Michigan, and so we get particularly uh, kind of uniquely impacted by this transition uh, as we're, as you know, we're the, the auto capital, have the switch to electric vehicles for GM and Stellantis. This is also a transition that many people think will be problematic in and of itself, uh, particularly in the short term. How does ESG impact the energy sector and fossil fuel companies specifically? Well, I mean, as I said, climate change is the core priority for ESG, no matter who you talk to. Um, and if you look, climate change is the core of all the sustainable development goals. It's embedded in 12 out of the 17 goals and then it has its own standalone goal. So everyone has agreed on one thing, that climate change is the first priority. And it, it's not just about driving capital to uh, electric vehicles and renewable power and, and other uh, green energy initiatives. Uh, you also need to defund fossil fuels. You need to constrain the supply of fossil fuels. So it, it's a two-part process. 
And that's really what, you know, I think the public needs to focus more on because it's occurring in the financial markets. But that defunding, I think, is an important piece. It's never good enough just to invest in, in whatever initiatives that they're, they're putting out there. Uh, you also have to defund oil and gas at the same time. And it's a transition that's politically driven. Uh, this is not based on market demand. Um, and we can't complete it right now based on the technology we have. So you can pump a lot of electric vehicles and subsidize their cost um, and, and basically force consumers to buy them. But, you know, you can't electrify the entire economy at the same time that you're making it more dependent on intermittent renewable solar and, and wind, right? We know how that, that ends. You know, it means our, our grid is going to be more unstable. And if it goes down in the winter, that means more people will die, as we saw in Texas three years ago. So, you know, unreliable power is not something we've really, we really had to deal with for, for the last 100 years. That's going to now be coming back in vogue because of these policies, which, again, they're, they're government-driven. They're not driven by the market or technology. Try to make it applicable to the individual listener, because most of us are simple nine-to-five folks. We're not hedge fund managers, not corporate elites or politicians. How would ESG affect the average person's daily life? And where would that show up? Is this going to be, you know, in their retirement accounts? Where is this going to be showing up in, you know, for individuals? Where, where can they witness this taking place in their daily lives? Well, if they're invested in the market, um, then, you know, they'll see it in terms of um, more restricted investment options, right? You know, if these regulations come down from the SEC and the Department of Label, labor and uh, withstand legal challenge, then you will have less options in terms of what you can invest in because ESG is driving that. And at points in time, you know, you're going to miss out on, on outperformance by the energy sector because obviously it's driven by commodity prices. And so in 21 and 22, the, the, the best performing sector in both the debt and equity markets, bar, you know, bar none, was oil and gas, right? So you will miss out on that investment performance. But you know, for all Americans, you know, I think the pain will really be felt in terms of higher energy prices, because if you defund the industry, if you constrain capital, growth will be constrained on the supply side. And the laws of supply and demand just tell you that that means prices are going to go up. So, you know, I think directionally, uh, oil moving back above $100 per barrel is likely over the next coming years. Um, and then Americans are going to feel that because that'll drive the cost of everything. So the inflation we've had to deal with the last two years, uh, which has been bad, I think will look like child's play, you know, if we have to deal with higher energy prices because, you know, energy is hydrocarbons are used to make everything and transport everything. I mean, that's the reality. So that is where uh, consumers are really going to feel it. And that's going to be a very regressive tax, you know, impacting lower income strata, you know, in particular. You mentioned the UN. Um, I'm also kind of curious in your research and, and on ESG, what kind of role the, the World Economic Forum may have had in promulgating this new way of investing. And can you kind of speak further into how the government is using and massaging these non-governmental organizations, in some cases, you know, outside of the UN, obviously, how they're using those to push their agenda? Yeah, well, as I mentioned, you know, the United Nations has taken the lead since the 80s on climate change. Obviously, they have their regular reports there. Uh, so they're leading the so-called research around the climate. And then sustainable development since the late 80s has also been uh, an important vertical. 
And then in the 2000s, 2006, they set up their um, Principles for Responsible Investment, which is an investor group. Um, and that basically is the last leg of the stool, as I mentioned, but it's, it's the important one because it's, it gets at the financing and the funding piece of all of this agenda. And if you look right now, basically every investor on Wall Street is a member of that PRI group. And, you know, with that membership comes requirements. You know, you have to integrate ESG into all of your assets, you know, greater than 90% technically, but effectively it's all of your assets, even if they were not raised, you know, under an ESG mandate. So obviously that's a fiduciary problem. And then you also have to engage with all the companies you invest in and force them to comply. And you have to file regular reports to show that you're um, in compliance with the program. And then you have to collaborate with everybody else uh, to make this, you know, all go into effect. So it's a very collective, coercive process that's being pushed on to Wall Street. And the UN is behind all of that. Um, and then obviously a lot of the, uh, the national governments, you see the bureaucrats there get recycled and work at the UN as whatever commissioner. John Kerry would be a good example. In this country, um, you know, the, the uh, prime minister of Norway who headed up the Sustainable Development uh, Commission back in the 80s, she went on to be a climate advisor. So it's all intertwined, and it's the same people, and it's a non-democratic process. You can't vote out the UN. Um, so no one's really voted on, on this, or, or we've had a referendum on whether we want to do this. It's just being implemented behind the scenes, you know, through regulations or, or moral duress. This might be a bit deep into the weeds, but you might have some insight on this as, as far as the why. Why are folks in the UN specifically, why, why are they pushing ESG? Is this getting, is this lining their own pockets with money, lining the money, uh, the pockets of their friends? Is this just a, um, this is going to put them further into solidifying their power or is it kind of all of the above? Yeah, I think it's all of the above. But to get back to your last question, the World Economic Forum you know, which was formed in 1971, since the 80s, they have kind of been a fellow traveler with the United Nations. So they echo each other in terms of sustainability, stakeholder capitalism, because again, they're, they're both intertwined. So you will see a lot of white papers and policy papers coming out of the World Economic uh, Forum, you know, many of which are trial balloons, but ultimately they'll get implemented. Um, so they're all reading from the same playbook. Uh, and again, the, the World Economic Forum is an NGO. It's a nonprofit. Um, it, it, it's unclear why so many companies feel that they have to adhere to their agenda, as well as the UN agenda. I mean, we, we didn't right. vote on the Paris Agreement. It never went to the Senate for ratification. The same for the Sustainable Development Goals. And so that's, that's extra constitutional. So um, why companies and state and local governments in this country think that they have to adhere to it and align uh, is unclear. But um, to your last question, why? I think there's a lot of money to be made here. Obviously, there are billions and millions of dollars being churned out to subsidize a lot of these initiatives. People are making careers out of this. You know, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, obviously, uh, are both involved with, with ESG. Um, and there's a lot of conflict of interest around this. But I think at the end of the day, back in the 80s, the UN kind of shifted its mandate, you know, away from the original one, which was to prevent war on this planet and keep the peace to more of a, uh, a social agenda using soft power behind the scenes. So it's all about control. And 
you know, if I'm right in terms of my, my argument that climate change is the core and that's targeted at fossil fuels, well, you know, if you control fossil fuels, you control capitalism and growth. And that's going to be negative in terms of mobility, economic freedom, uh, as well as democracy. Um, and those will not be free markets that result on the back of this. Yeah, that's, that's very concerning. You know, and this might slightly um, play back from that previous question, but ESG is kind of a taboo subject in polite society. Uh, why has the idea of ESG received a little public pushback? And, and why are the folks on Wall Street afraid to speak up? Is it just kind of groupthink? Well, I, I think, I mean, Wall Street is similar to other industries. If you have a CEO who said, we're going to do this sustainability thing, um, you know, if you speak out in public, if you push back on it day to day, you know, you're probably not going to get paid and eventually you're going to get fired, right? And I've experienced some of that, you know, towards the tail end of my career, right? So um, it's tough to speak out uh, and contradict the CEO. Um, and so it's a top-down thing um, that's being pushed on individual companies. Um, but... Um, I think it's a taboo subject also because, as I said, if you want to get into a, a public fight about ESG, then that means the first punch that you have to throw is around climate change and questioning the data and the science there, which you know, I devote a whole chapter in my book to that. I think that's very easy to argue um, that climate, there is no climate emergency and the data don't say what everyone is, is telling us they say. They say. Um, but no one wants to throw that first punch. So I think that's another thing that helps to shut down dissent. Um, you know, climate denier has been thrown around for decades. You know, I've been called that, you know, for some of the stuff I've written publicly for the last few years. I laugh whenever people say that. But for a lot of people, you know, it's enough to keep them quiet, uh, which is unfortunate because I think we need to speak more bluntly and, and talk about the obvious truths about what's going on here. We've talked about how ESG will impact the energy and fossil fuel sectors and why we should be generally concerned about this move towards sustainable investing. Any other specific areas that ESG will potentially cause issues in that we haven't addressed yet? Well, you know, I think that's, that's the big one. That's, you know, the, the, the negative scenario for the markets. You know, this transition we know can't be completed as dialed right now, and, and it's going to have a very negative macroeconomic impact. But um, you know, I think there, there probably will be a lot of unintended consequences. Um, it, it's really once you have control of individuals by saying that emissions are a problem and we need to control it, and, and maybe the next iterations we take it down to the individual level and people get a carbon allotment, which the World Economic Forum has thrown that out there as, as potentially something we need to do, or we have 15-minute cities, you can see that the, the, the read-through for society in general is very negative. Um, and the other thing about ESG to keep in mind is that it, it's a two-tiered um, playing field. Uh, all of these requirements on the ESG front, particularly around decarbonizing, are applied towards mainly developed countries and developed markets. And then the third world is given a pass. You know, so we're going to be lowering living standards in the industrialized West and raising them in the third world, uh, which m many people think is okay. But you know, there clearly is a way to do it differently and to raise living standards in the third world, most likely by, by increasing their use of dependable fossil fuels, but no one is willing to have that discussion. So I'm sure there'll be a lot of unintended consequences. Um, 
you know, but if we get climate right, then it dismantles the entire framework. In that answer, you kind of brought up something that I'm, I'm interested in. And just two more questions. Uh, thank you for your time so far. This has just been a very interesting conversation. Uh, with the, um, you kind of like talking about third world countries and, you know, modern countries, but then you kind of look over at China. They're not adhering to the uh, kind of this ESG environmentally friendly way of living that many more modern countries are following at the behest of the UN, as you mentioned, why do they get a free pass while Western countries don't? Well, I, I think the system has been gamed. Um, I think it's very late to be calling China and India, you know, uh, developing countries. Clearly, they're, they're at least middle income. Um, and, and clearly, they're significant in terms of, of size. But uh, I'll give you one metric, you know, for every one gigawatt of coal power generation that we've shut down, in the last eight years in North America and Europe, the industrialized world, um, we've added two new gigawatts of generation for coal in the third world, primarily China and India, right? So to your point, um, they are held up to a different standard, which is no standard. Um, and I, I think that just speaks to the lack of credibility and, and uh, authority for the United Nations. I mean, the UN really has been captured by, by developing countries going back to, you know, the 50s and 60s. And I think this, this shift in their mandate that really kicked in in the 80s towards, you know, uh, an environmental and social program, um, part of that is a wealth transfer. Um, but again, it, it's, it's basically a reverse takeover of the UN, if you want to think about it. Um, and so there, there's not a logic to it, um, um, but, you know, it, it explains why it's being driven by the UN. Lastly, maybe a little bit of hope. Uh, some of the biggest promoters of ESG uh, I've seen, BlackRock and Vanguard, are really trying to latch on to this. There's, they're the biggest asset managers in the world. It's really hard to break free. How can the everyday person, though, fight back against ESG investing? Well, I, I, I would make the point that while a lot of firms may be led by a CEO who really believes in this, and, and clearly that would be the case for BlackRock, um, which is run by Larry Fink, you know, there are more CEOs who are afraid to speak out about this and are just doing this out of fear. Because the way ESG works is if you don't stick with the program, then you become the next target. And if you're a public company, they will you know, target you with a proxy battle or they'll have protesters show up at your annual meeting or at your headquarters, you know, give you bad publicity. So it, it, it's basically meant to keep everyone in place. So I think a lot of firms, both within Wall Street as well as across business, are afraid to speak out. So it's more driven by fear as opposed to they agree with everything uh, on the ESG agenda. And Bud Light's a good example. Um, you know, I, I don't think the fact that they can't seem to right the ship in the past year for the debacle around, you know, the, uh, the transgender marketing they had for Bud Light nearly a year ago. Um, that to me tells me that, you know, the fact that they can't articulate um, why they made a mistake uh, in terms of that marketing decision is because they're worried about the financial markets uh, as opposed to just one small advocacy group. Because ESG, you have to buy into everything. Right. Otherwise, again, as I said, you become the target. And I think the fact that Bud Light, Anheuser-Busch has a European parent also explains it because obviously Europe is, is, uh, is more focused on ESG and has been really the driving force, at least those governments there, 
for a, a lot of this agenda. But what can people do? Um, obviously, you control your, your dollars. So don't patronize any company that doesn't align with your values. I think the same thing goes for whoever manages your money. Um, but I, I think the other important piece should be that educate yourself about climate change. And most, most Americans probably realize that it's a hoax um, intuitively. Uh, arm yourself with a little information. You know, you know read the, the, the stuff that's out there. More scientists now are speaking up about it, which is good. As I said, the data is flawed. Uh, I try to lay out all the problems you know, in one chapter to help frame the issues and focus on that going forward and, and, and put pressure on your lawmakers. Because as I mentioned, I think the government, we need government resources to kind of lead the charge. And that's probably at the state level. Um, actually getting back to one of your previous questions about why don't people speak up about this? The other side has been very good about characterizing the debate as a political one. So if you criticize ESG, you're, you're, you're basically said to be you know, acting too political, right? And that helps to also to shut down the conversation. I, I think people who are opposed to this and what's happening in the markets should embrace that. I mean, yeah, this is, this is politics at the end of the day. This is progressive politics masquerading as finance. Um, and we should just acknowledge that. And again, I think a lot of the state HEs, the red states are going to help to lead the charge to challenge some of these regulations. And the Chevron ruling, which hopefully comes down from the Supreme Court in the next few months, hopefully reverses a lot of the deference that's been given to regulatory agencies the last few years. And maybe that helps to accelerate um, the pushback uh, on the ESG and the climate front. Um, so I think Americans need to voice and, and focus more on this because it, this is really the most important thing to worry about in terms of um, getting to net zero and shutting down fossil fuels. It's defunding it in the markets. Um, a lot of these uh, public regulations that, that people are, are, are seeing now, not allowing you to have a generator you know, not, or, or a gas uh, furnace or a gas stove or the pause on LNG exports, um, they're not as significant in my mind as what's going on in the market. Well, thank you for letting us know what to do, because I know a lot of our listeners definitely are, are starting to get concerned about ESG and are looking for ways how they can fight back. We're speaking with Paul Tice, author of the new book, The Race to Zero, How ESG Investing Will Crater the Global Financial System. If you found this conversation interesting, concerning, eye-opening, or any combination of those, head over to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your favorite book retailer to pick up, again, your copy of The Race to Zero, How ESG Investing Will Crater the Global Financial System. Paul, thanks for your time today and uh, for highlighting this very important issue. Thanks, Nick. Uh, thanks for having me.